Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Shaparo, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode for you. I'm, I'm happy to be behind the mic again after getting the corona, finally, and today christening my return, I, I guess, is Adam Dell, founder and CEO of Domain Money. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. You have such an interesting um, background as a fintech pioneer, having founded the popular budgeting and payments app Clarity Money prior to its acquisition by Goldman Sachs. So this isn't your first rodeo, so to speak, in terms of building a fintech platform. At the same time, rival crypto apps are kind of under immense pressure as a result of everything that's going on post three arrows demise. So there's a lot to unpack here. I appreciate you coming on again. I guess to start, for people who maybe are not familiar with the investment platform, Adam, walk us through exactly what it does and why you set out to launch it in the first place. Yeah, thank you again for having me. Domain Money offers managed portfolios of both stock and crypto assets the reason we started the company is that you know, the digital asset category is one that is far removed from most investors' day-to-day lives. You know, the average investor can use Amazon, they can uh, experience a Tesla, they can use Johnson & Johnson products and get a sense of what the underlying value of the asset is. That's really not the case with blockchain technologies. They're very far removed from most people's day to day. And yet there's enormous demand and interest in the asset class from the retail investment community. And so our thesis was to build portfolios that were managed by teams of experts that understand 
what it is to build portfolios, what it is to manage a broad array of investments. So we've hired a team out of Goldman Sachs and Bridgewater Associates to construct those portfolios and manage those on behalf of our customers. Yeah. I think when we spoke over the phone, when we first met, you mentioned it targeting dentists and doctors in Nebraska or something of that type of profile. Well, yes. I mean, you know, there are many retail investors out there who, as I said, are looking for access to this asset class, but rather than devoting the time to try to research and analyze each of the underlying technologies that make up blockchain projects, you know, would prefer to have it done on a managed basis. And that's the offering of domain money. I think one added wrinkle to operating in this space now is trust. Not only do retail investors have to to some extent, buy into the idea that crypto is worth investing in. Now they have to bridge the chasm between whether or not they trust the applications they're putting their money into. How do you, in this post Three Arrows world where you had Voyager, shut withdrawal, Celsius is in the midst of I guess, bankruptcy. There's CoinFlex shut withdrawals. The list goes on. How do you sort of embed trust or communicate to clients that their money will be there a week from now, a year from now, et cetera? Because this assumption is gone now. That assumption that, you know, obviously the coins could go down in price. They often do. But now, also, the platform may not exist. Yeah. How do you build trust? Yeah, it's a fair observation and important point. Our team comes out of Goldman Sachs. We built the Marcus platform, which includes Marcus Invest, which is Goldman Sachs retail investment platform, Marcus Savings, Marcus Checking. You know, we're quite familiar with large scale, highly complex financial products built within highly regulated industries. You know, one of the points I made in our investor deck when we were raising our first round of capital was exactly that point, which is, who are you investing with? And so, you know, we take the idea of managing our customers' money extremely seriously We've done a number of things to safeguard those assets and ensure trust. One is security. So uh, we utilize encryption, the latest in bank level security to ensure that our systems are up and running and secure. Second is for equity investments. We have SIPC insurance for uh, clients. Third is for deposits. We have FDIC insurance through our bank partnership. And fourth, we don't take balance sheet risk. And so many of the entities you mentioned were using their clients' funds to basically take levered positions in the market. Now, they did that with the knowledge of the client, but they may not have done it with the knowledge of all of their clients. And in the case of Voyager... People don't think about that. Thing, yeah. That sort yeah. of thing. So we don't take balance sheet risk. You know, the price of... The assets on our platform 
they could go up by a large percentage and it wouldn't change our balance sheet uh, that much. They could go down by a large percentage and it wouldn't change our balance sheet that much. Because we don't take market risk, we remain market neutral. You know, we're not subject to the, the volatility that impacts uh, some of the competitors you mentioned. You are one of the preeminent experts in this field. When you look at everything that's happened, the amount of risk-taking that's been going on behind the scenes, what is your prognostication of that? It's almost like the crypto market had a mini 2008 meltdown. Are you surprised that there was so much risk-taking going on behind the scenes? No, not at all. In fact, I said it publicly early on that there were a number of players in this market who were taking uh, excessive risk with clients funds and then it mm-hmm. would come back to bite them. Yeah. It also is the case that a number of competitors out there were promoting unrealistic yields on savings accounts yeah. which were not sustainable and were being done through the use of marketing dollars or taking ever riskier positions. Now, same could be said about returns for Bitcoin. Uh, if you invested you know, in Bitcoin two years ago, you doubled your money. If you invested in Bitcoin three years ago, you know, even better. Four years ago, five years ago, you know, even better. And so the returns in crypto have been phenomenal, as, as many people know, but a lot of those retail investors who entered in the market when the prices were uh, at their peak are really suffering. And some of our customers are within that bucket, that cohort as well. The nature of this marketplace is that it's extremely nascent. Investors ought to be thinking about crypto investing like early stage venture capital, which is there will be many losers and a few winners. And it is risky. That's always been the case in this asset class and will remain so for some time. The broader dynamics of the crypto market are that you have thousands of projects out there being developed by a very small number of engineers. Uh, Just to put things in perspective, there are about 24 million software developers in the world. There are about 7 million Java developers within that number. There are about 25,000 blockchain developers. And half of them were doing something else a year and a half ago. And so if you think about the scale of the engineering community that's working on these technologies, it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out that the number of lines of code that have been built with that number of engineers is still very, very small relative to, say, the Java developer community. And if you're talking about rebuilding a banking technology stack or coming up with alternative mediums of exchange, settlement or remittance or any banking function, it requires a lot of code. Now, there are engineers who would argue with me on that point. Uh, There are some DeFi exchanges that have been built by a few number of engineers and they function quite well and they scale. But as you think about the broader needs of an institutional market participating in arbitrage or trading, those entities require more more capabilities 
than are currently available on many of the more mature DeFi exchanges. The point I'm making is it's very nascent and there's still yet a lot to be built before this market matures. Yeah. Well, the one thing that I appreciate about what domain money is, is it's very, you guys are very clear about the type of firm you are, that you're investing on behalf of clients, you have FDIC insurance. It's all kind of laid out there for the consumer. I feel like part of the issue with what's been going on in the crypto world is everyone's trying to say they're not a financial services company when they are branding themselves as a non-bank or, you know, Celsius saying, unbank yourself with us. When at the end of the day, most of the functions behind the scenes are banking financial services functions. And I think that's part of the problem is customers don't really know what they're getting into. They don't really know that there is this sort of risk-taking behind the scenes. One figure that stood out to me, Adam, that I think you'll find fascinating is Voyager's assets to equity ratio was 23 to 1. Celsius was 19 to 1. I think the average bank, you're going to be in single digits, maybe, I don't know, 8 to 10 or something like that. I think FactSet, I was reading this morning, FactSet data shows the average asset to equity ratio for all of the North American banks in the S&P 1500 was nine to one. Yep. So we're almost at double that. I mean, that's significant. Yeah, well, it's a it's a reflection of a lack of regulation in the industry and a, and a willingness to take risk with client funds, uh, which has not worked out too well for those entities. Um, again, we don't do that. Uh, we don't take any risk with our clients' funds other than try to invest for them, but we don't lend them out. We don't borrow against them. We don't use any leverage and certainly nothing like what some of those competitors have done. You know, this industry needs regulation. The bipartisan bill that's been presented uh, to address regulation of digital assets and to delineate between commodities uh, with the CFTC and securities with the SEC and to uh, have the regulatory body of the CFTC own the digital asset category makes a lot of sense to us. Uh, we like the fact that there's an exemption for smaller value transactions, which promotes the utilization of these technologies rather than the speculation uh, with them. And so, you know, we're encouraged that uh, regulation is coming and to your point is much needed because you're right, the average retail investor uh, doesn't appreciate those risks and isn't familiar with the coverage ratios that are required by regulated entities like banks and are not required by unregulated entities like some of the crypto banks that have you know fallen on hard times. Yeah, I think that's well put. So let's dig into exactly what you guys do. How do you develop your portfolio strategies? What's the alchemy behind them? Yeah, it's a good question. It's really about infrastructure. We are focused on the engineering efforts by various layer one and layer two protocols, wherein we believe that the engineers behind those projects have a clear understanding of a market function that they are building to solve for, and that that market function has economic value that will inure to the token holders of the protocol. 
essentially we're making bets on those teams that are building the next version of the banking stack. So that's a big part of our thesis is predicated on the notion of of infrastructure. The second thing uh, I would say is we have a focus on some thematic investment opportunities. So we have a metaverse strategy, which has both stocks and crypto. And again, sticking with the infrastructure theme, has assets in it like Qualcomm and NVIDIA, Snap and others on the equity side uh, that provide the core infrastructure components to enable the metaverse. We believe that the metaverse is one of the very first examples of how technologies like NFTs will become more ubiquitous and there will be use cases that are much more consumable and and can be experienced by retail investors can be experienced by uh, game players uh, in the gaming space. And so we're quite optimistic about the the coming metaverse and have built a strategy around that. The sort of backdrop of, you know, post-COVID meme stocks and metaverse land, all this stuff taking off can be tied to just the sheer amount of liquidity that the Fed was pumping into the system and as well as the government through stimulus checks and the like. Now that that sort of liquidity boom is gone, rates are ticking up and the Fed is becoming more hawkish. What does that mean for fintech companies, for domain money that really find more success when there's a lot of easy money floating around and people are excited to invest because Numbers are going up across the board. Now numbers aren't going up, really. So how do you entice them to try their hand at investing now that the merry-go-round of easy money has halted? Well, I think the points you make are are absolutely correct. You know, what we're interested in is long-term value creation for our investors through sound investment approaches based on what we believe to be you know, valuable projects that over time will emerge. The euphoria around NFTs, metaverse, Bitcoin in general, uh, as uh, liquidity was pumped into the market by the federal government, all that stuff to me is really a example of you know, over-exuberance in our economy, right? The way our economy works is a new innovation emerges, a whole bunch of Companies scramble to try to win that innovation and be the dominant market leader with that technology, and yet only a few survive. And those that survive Mm -hmm. rise to prominence. Because of the nature of crypto and that anyone can invest, you had a dynamic where anyone could participate, and many did. And then you had the added component of COVID and the stimulus dollars and the active trader movement coming to sort of a crest and all those factors coalesced into uh, enormous euphoria around the price of NFTs, the the price of Bitcoin, uh, and many of these other projects that sort of rose and then fell. Yeah. If you take all of that stuff out of the equation and you focus again on those engineering teams that are building things that matter, what you see is a real delineation between euphoria and real value. 
And so we've we've tried to focus on real value. And so, you know, while it's certainly tougher out there in the crypto market to see positive returns on your investments in the short term, given the current market trend, you know, the engineers that are building these things, they don't stop going to work because the price of their coin has gone down. They continue <laughs> to build. Uh, and those teams that are committed to building things that have a real solution to a real problem, we think will emerge powerful over time. And so that's really our focus. I'm a little bit conflicted in that I, I certainly you know, want all of our investors to have uh, positive returns in, in, in any time frame. Uh, but I, I also think this is, in the long term, a very good thing for this industry to go through to weed yeah. out the bad actors, to weed out the momentum and meme-focused investors and have a set of investments thrive and grow over time that, as I said, are solving real-world problems. And to me, that's the opportunity set. And so if you're a long-term investor and you have a proper asset allocation, meaning you understand the risks associated with this very risky asset class, then this is a you know compelling opportunity for investors who meet the criteria of being able to withstand market downturns and recognize that this is a very volatile asset class and it's quite risky. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe White and Woodland Green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. It seemed like the markets were broken in hindsight. I mean, when you have dog coins surging by triple digit percentages and images of rocks selling for a million dollars, something, something's going on, something, there's some wires that are not connected. So it'll be good to just get a bit back into reality, especially for new investors who hopefully uh, come out of this thinking or understanding that sort of stuff is not always sustainable. You were head of product when you were at Goldman working on Marcus. So I, I don't know. I want to pick your brain from a product perspective. So much of what's important when building um, any type of financial technology service or, or company is that People enjoy being in the app, even when markets are down, right? There's sort of a delightfulness to it. It's very important to Robinhood, 
when they were designing, you know, I, I remember when they came into our offices at the time of the desktop launch and Vlad described it as he wanted it to be more like an Amazon shopping experience than, you know, going into your account, right? Even banks, right? They want you to not be depressed <laughs> when going into your account. How do you how do you build a product and how do you think about those things when building a product? How do you think about like delightfulness and you know, it's one thing to have great returns. It's another thing to just really enjoy checking the app, being in it, etc. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, we've focused a lot on product. We focused on it in Clarity Money. We focused on it at Marcus. We focus on it at Domain. The delightful vector is a very important one. And it comes down to color. It comes down to feel. It comes down to intuitiveness. And it comes down to solving the, the thing that the customer has come to have solved. You know, for each one of those projects, the problem was different, mm. but the approach was the same, which is, does the experience of the product leave the customer with a feeling of satisfaction that not only did they get what they came for, but they were somehow delighted in addition? Uh, and that's mm. sort of the filter that we think about. You know, can something that is meant to be nutritious also be delicious is another way of thinking about it. Because people know they need nutritious, but they really want delicious. And so, yeah. you know, we've added little features here and there along the way that are meant to delight, but also uh, serve the core problem that uh, customers are trying to solve. And that balance between, you know, delightfulness and, and problem solving is, you know, sort of the art and science of product. There's nothing more powerful than what the data tells you. And so we let the data tell us, in other words, what the customer tells us uh, they want. And we try to listen and try to evolve quickly. That's the best product advice I could give you. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. What does it look like within a bank? It's, it's not too dissimilar from within a startup environment, but I guess in the latter, you can probably move a bit faster in giving the client what they want? Certainly a lot faster in a startup than a bank. Uh, regulated entities are complex beasts. What I would say is that really enjoyed building out the product suite at Marcus. Really proud of what the team accomplished there and what that experience is like. Kudos to uh, Solomon at Goldman Sachs for giving Marcus and the team there the space to innovate and create. I think David Solomon isn't given enough credit for what Marcus has achieved. You know, Marcus is, um, you know, I'm highly biased because I built it, but um, <laughs> uh, I think it's the best digital bank there is. The product is really useful and not just as a banking product. You want to understand what you spent on Amazon last year. It's literally one click and they show you. Uh, you want to know, how much you spend on groceries or what your most frequent merchants are that you spend money at, it's the click away. And those insights, uh, particularly for retail banking, are delightful and unexpected. And so that balance between, okay, well, you've secured my money, you've, you know, I'm getting interest on my money, that's the primary job of a bank to save and deliver me interest. But there's all these low-hanging fruits that they can provide 
using all of that data. Yeah, and to a large degree, we've done that at Marcus, but there's still more to be done, obviously. It's a good start, and uh, I continue to use the Marcus uh, product. It's, uh, it's delightful. I don't use Marcus, but I use the Apple Goldman credit card, which has similar functions of shaming me for not shaming, but I shame myself when I look at how much I spend on coffee. It's really getting pretty out of hand. So, but if it wasn't for me seeing that, like on the monthly, you can kind of break it down by month and by year, I wouldn't have bought that at home coffee maker. And now I'm saving however much a month. Yep. This episode's sponsored by my coffee maker. But it, yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if it might be useful. I, I certainly think it would be interesting to like go into that history, right? I remember when Goldman was in its very early innings of kind of trying to rebrand itself to a degree from a very securities trading focused firm obviously banking focus firm to this more consumer friendly retail type of environment. And, you know, you rewind the clock. I think it must've been five, six years ago when I was covering the firm, I remember they held this, I don't know if it was Marcus related, but they held some like comedy night event where they, did this like weird performance type thing and it was sponsored by Marcus. And like, I just remember being at that event and thinking, wow, this is a very different type of Goldman. And now it's just, it is what it is. Goldman is now this retail brand as much as it is a banking giant, but maybe you can share some insights into the, how that transition happened and what it looked like on the inside, because it was early on, at least to me, like very jarring to have like this once white tip shoe firm kind of, kind of try to be a little bit more like that meme where, um, who's the actor in the Sopranos who comes in with the skateboard and hello, fellow kids. That's what Goldman kind of did, but now it's just what it is. What did that transition look like? Well, Goldman Sachs as a firm is surprisingly impressive for an institution that has the scale it does and the institutional legacy that it does. They are really good at figuring out where there are new pockets of opportunity and methodically and maniacally attacking them. Yeah. Think about Goldman Sachs and retail banking and you go back five years ago they were kind of nowhere. And today mm -hmm. they have the Apple card, they have Marcus, they have a number of credit card partnerships, they have a burgeoning wealth management business that is now accessible to more Americans through the ACO channel, which has an enormous number of relationships with corporate partners where they offer wellness to employees. And so if you just look at that holistically, what you see is a, a concerted effort to tap into the retail market and to do it in a way that is highly leveraged, right? Through partnerships with companies like Apple or through channels like ACO. And it just shows you the power of the firm to think through how they can have a 
unfair advantage in attacking a new market. There's nothing wrong with an unfair advantage as long as it's uh, fairly achieved, right? Mm. And so they've won those relationships with partners like Apple or partner companies through the ACO channel squarely and fairly over time. And, and they're now leveraging those into you know business opportunities that allow them to extend to the retail channel. And so it's just a very impressive set of ideas and capabilities that the firm has executed on. And, and I can speak most knowledgeably about the Marcus experience. You asked you know, sort of what that was like inside the firm. What I can tell you is that the firm did a very good job of creating a blank canvas and allowing for innovation mm. to happen and, and allowing a space for innovation and ideas to take root uh, and to grow without the meddling of the broader firm. And the firm was able to do that because it had no retail business to cannibalize or conflict with. And so there was nobody's sure. toes who were being stepped on because, you know, institutional traders or the prop desk or the, sure. uh, the investment banking business, they don't care. They weren't <laughs> bust by, you know, somebody signing up a, a savings account for a retail customer. It just didn't impact their world. And so it allowed for a, a space to build that was pretty unique for, as I said, an institution of that scale. And they attracted the right kind of talent. They acquired my business. They brought in a number of other entrepreneurs from places like Netflix and Amazon and Google. And, and so they inoculated the culture of Marcus with a, a team of technology people rather than investment bankers. And that formula worked a lot better than, you know, five guys from the you know security side of the house at Goldman Sachs saying, hey, let's go build a retail banking platform. Yeah. So I give them enormous credit. I've made a career out of out executing big, dumb, slow moving companies. But I have to hand it to Goldman. They are not slow and they're not dumb. They are fast, furious and ruthless. I think that blank canvas aspect has to be the magic weapon. Because, I mean, it's such a good point when you don't have to compete against existing processes, executives, and you're starting from scratch, you can kind of move full steam ahead. So as you guys move, continue to move full steam ahead at Domain Money, what, what are some of the things you're excited about over the next six months? Well, we're looking at expanding our product offering into uh, additional investment opportunities beyond the portfolios we offer today. And so looking carefully at constructing those on behalf of our customers, you know, always seeking to improve the product experience to your point about delightfulness, making it faster, making it more useful, thinking hard about ways that we can serve the customer more broadly, whether that be through a financial advisor, live chat, things that allow the customer to have a deeper connection to our platform is really top of mind for us. How did you come up with the name? <laughs> um, I had the name in mind for some time and, you know, thought that it would fit well with what domain is trying to be, which is to help people establish their own financial domain, their own investment domain. It's just a, to me, a powerful word that conveys 
control and strength around financial wellness, financial security, financial freedom. Interesting. Yeah, I should ask that more often to people. It's Everybody seems to enjoy that question. We just changed our name, or at least our URL. Well, Adam, I really appreciate you stopping by the show today. Thanks for having me. Have a great rest of your week. Yeah, definitely. Love the bookshelf. Adam has like a million books behind him. What have you, have you read some of them? What's your favorite one in there? <laughs> I mean, that's like asking somebody what their favorite movie is or <laughs> I just read a really cool book called when we cease to understand the world by Benjamin Labuta. I don't know if I pronounced his last name, right. But uh, if you remember that movie, uh, midnight in Paris, it's about sort of a fantastical version of, Paris when, you know, Man Ray and Dali and other luminaries of the time would gather in parlors and discuss the ideas of the day. Um, Mm. It's sort of that, but if it were about math and physics, which might sound really boring, but it's about Schrodinger and Heisenberg and Einstein. And it sort of weaves together a fictional account of interactions that they could have had, might have had, didn't necessarily have with the actual science and research work that they were doing. And that part of the story is based in in reality. And so that weaving together of fantasy and fiction around the topics of energy, matter, existence, the universe, time, space, is a pretty fun random walk through... uh, some very deep minds. So I enjoyed that. That sounds excellent. So before you go, where can our listeners learn more about what you and Domain Money are up to? You can download our app on the App Store or the Google Play Store at Domain Money. If you search there, uh, you can sign up on our website at DomainMoney.com. Those will be the three places. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.